so it's five years since this since the Supreme Court acted. And contrary to you know many opponents at the time, the internet didn't collapse. Uh, I think that you can still shop online. Welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Of course, we're proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Liz Farmer, flying solo this week. My co-host, Justin Marlowe, is off. This week, we're going to be talking about the sales tax, specifically remote sales taxation and how that came to be a case before the Supreme Court in the first place and the impact of what it meant for states to be able to collect sales taxes on remote sales. Our guest is Max Belke, the Deputy Executive Director for the Institute for State Policy Leaders. Max was deeply involved in the legislation in South Dakota that eventually made its way to the Supreme Court for that landmark case, Wayfair v. South Dakota. At the time, Max worked for the National Conference of State Legislatures. Before we have Max on, though, I want to kind of set the stage a little bit and talk about just the sales tax, sales tax policy, really. You know, the, the, the idea behind any tax is to capture a small portion of a particular economic activity that's occurring in a state or locality. Of course, with the income tax, it's fairly obvious what economic activity that is. With the sales tax, that activity is commerce. And there are pros and cons to the sales tax. The pro, from a state policy perspective, is that it's much less, it's less volatile than the income tax. It's easier to forecast from year to year. um, And that, of course, makes it easier for state budgeters to forecast revenue. A con, and it's a big con, is that it's regressive, and that means it hurts lower income earners, bottom line, a lot more than it impacts rich folks. But getting getting back to that, the sales tax applies to the stuff we buy. When it was written, when these laws were passed, it started in 1930 with Mississippi, and over the next couple of decades, uh, 44 other states adopted it. And so in the mid-19th century, we were buying goods, and that was the, the driving force of what commerce meant in our economy. And so the sales tax worked. It captured that share of, of spending. But of course, as we started relying more on technology and services, those were things that weren't, aren't generally factored into how the sales tax is written in states. And so they're harder to tax in a lot of places. Um, as our economy shifted towards those things, states' reliance on sales tax revenue began to shrink. So their reliance on the sales tax revenue kind of started teetering downward, I want to say, in the in the mid-90s. And then it really started heading downhill in the early 2000s. Not dramatically so, but certainly notice, noticeably so from a revenue reliance perspective, especially compared to the income tax, where states' reliance on income tax has, has increased very much since, uh, since the 1980s. And so you have these two shifting trends. What that does, too, in terms of a from an equity perspective, is people who are who have more money tend to spend more on services. And without those being taxed, that means that the sales tax is even more regressive because the portion of consumer spending that it is capturing from folks who, who are lower income and spending much more of their money on goods rather than services, they're paying that tax on a lot of stuff. And the portion of the econ- of the of consumers who are wealthier and spending much more money on services, they're not getting taxed. And so that kind of creates an even more dramatic uh, regressivity in terms of the sales tax. But it has been difficult to change the sales tax to fit how we spend our money. Spending it on tech on things like software as a service, 
um, stuff that we download, you know, the Netflix tax, things like that. They've always, I mean, every change to tax uh, meets resistance, but those, at least from a legal perspective, haven't had much question about it. It's more of a lobbying perspective in terms of, you know, being able to expand the tax to certain types of products and spending. But from a legal perspective, the services um, have been very difficult to expand uh, the sales tax to. And remote sales have been essentially illegal for states to expand the sales tax to tax remote sales because in 1992, there was the Quill decision and and the Supreme Court at that time ruled that states could only apply the sales tax to companies that had a nexus in their state. And at that time, nexus was defined as physical presence. So for two plus decades, if you didn't have bricks and mortar in a state and you made a sale, in that state, you didn't have to be taxed because you didn't have a physical presence. And so that created some inequities for bricks and mortar businesses in states who had to remit a sales remit sales taxes to their state revenue offices and online companies did not have to. And you had phenomenons like this, like people going in to, to try on stuff in a bricks and mortar store to, to handle products and then go go online to buy them where they could find it cheaper. People still do that now that we are being taxed on all our sales. Um, But in any case, there was a lot of reasons for bricks and mortar businesses to not like the fact that states could not could not collect sales taxes from from their online counterparts. What happened with that Quill decision, of course, is in 2018, the Supreme Court overturned it. We'll get into some more details on that with Max. But the last thing I do want to say on the sales taxes in regards to the services, expanding the sales taxes services is kind of the next big hurdle for states. It's a very difficult one. States for decades have been trying to do this on a, in a large swooping basis and most usually failed pretty poorly. Florida in 1987, for example, tried to add services to its tax base and it expanded, expanded it on a lot of services, uh, things like advertising, legal, accounting, construction, among other things. And these, of course, are, are industries with big lobbies. I don't know how this legislature managed to get it passed in the first place, but it was very, very unpopular. And not only that, major corporations, uh, there was immediate backlash. Major corporations like Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble revoked or reduced their advertising in the state to protest the tax. Business groups canceled at least 60 conventions in the state as a protest. And so the backlash to this expansion of the sales tax to services was immediate, swift, and and harsh. And that tax lasted just six months before the legislature repealed it. That was 1987. A few years later, Massachusetts tries to do something similar. That law, that expansion lasted less than a year before it was repealed. And so instead of expanding the sales tax, states have raised rates as a way to kind of keep the sales tax revenue growing. And of course, that also makes it more regressive. Slowly but surely, states have been chipping away at the services, gym fees, um, other things like that. But it is by and large uh, the next frontier as far as modernizing the sales tax to match how we actually spend our money. And so uh, let's get into, though, the previous large hurdle that was remote sales taxation. Well, we'd like to welcome Max Belke, who is the Deputy Executive Director for the Institute for State Policy Leaders. Welcome, Max. Thank you very much, Liz. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm excited about this interview because you and I have known each other for a long time. And when I first met you in the early days, I guess, of when you all at NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures, were doing this whole let's 
fix the darn <laughs> remote taxation issue um, from uh, internet sales. We're going to get into the backstory about that, but I want to hear a little bit first about um, what you did at NCSL and maybe kind of set the stage a little bit. Like what were some of the other attempts to, um, to get at remote taxation for states? You know, I came on the National Conference State Legislatures in 2010, um, and I ultimately became uh, the director of the Budgets and Revenue Committee, uh, which uh, lobbied Congress and the administration on state priorities related to you know, budgets and fiscal issues, as well as I directed the Executive Committee Task Force on State and Local Taxation, uh, which was created uh, essentially after the 1992 Supreme Court decision of Quill versus State of North Dakota, which prevented states the ability to collect um, sales taxes from sellers that weren't in their states. So the, the task force was it was created to to define solutions to the, the remote sales tax issue, uh, which I spearheaded all the way through the Supreme Court um, case um, that ultimately became South Dakota v. Wayfair. Well, so the idea of states being able to collect a sales tax on remote sales, remote being a, a sale that the point of sale, the, the consumer is outside of their state or the, the seller is outside of their state. States have been lobbying Congress for years, right? For, and it was the uh, Marketplace Fairness Act, as I recall. I mean, and I think it was something like nine years that this had been a conversation in Congress, right? Absolutely. So the, after the, the Quill decision, the state and the National Conference State Legislatures, the National Governors Association came together and ultimately created the Free Mine Sales and Use Tax Agreement, which allowed states that had similar definitions and simplified their tax codes to make it easier to collect out-of-state sales taxes. We were pushing legislation and lobbying Congress to grant these states collection authority uh, because they had met these simplifications as they came about of that, that the Supreme Court asked for in Quill. It worked through, uh, and when I began um, pushing this issue, which has been gone for several decades, I came in, I'd say probably the halfway point. Streamline ultimately became effective in 2005. Uh, that's the legislation we were pushing, but Congress never considered it. Uh, I think they, they weren't comfortable with having a essentially a state compact in federal legislation. They were looking for other avenues to, to push this, uh, to, to get it created, enacted. Uh, so I was responsible for, for finding out, you know, what, what, what avenues or what legislation could we get Congress to move forward? Uh, so ultimately, you, know, there, you said there are several iterations of the bill. We were working really hard. I think the bill, the bill they actually passed the chamber was the Marketplace Fairness Act. Uh, which would have, which would allow the ability for streamlined states as well as other states that met certain simplifications to, to collect these taxes. And, and in my role to help push this forward, uh, I actually um, I spearheaded NCSL's first ever lobby day on Capitol Hill um, in December of 2012. 600 state legislators met with 84 members of the Senate um, to, to, to encourage them to, to consider and pass this. And ultimately, it did pass the Senate in May 6th of 2013, 20, 69 to 27, which is a, that's overwhelming bipartisan support. I remember being in the chamber when it passed, uh, but you're rather excited for that to happen. And uh, it was over, over the House Judiciary Committee where then Chairman, you know, Congressman Bob Goodlatte of Virginia uh, said it didn't address enough of his concerns. It, it didn't have enough simplifications. I said, okay. So we worked with him in his office. Uh, we had multiple meetings. Uh, that And we ultimately worked with a uh, member of that committee, Congressman Jason Chaffetz of Utah, uh, to work on the bill um, to improve it. I, he said, I, I think I met there in his, his, his office for three weeks straight writing this legislation, uh, trying to, to improve upon it. We ultimately got to the point where all the parties uh, agreed that it was uh, it improved upon what had passed the Senate. And it was ultimately introduced in June of 2015 as the Remote Transactions Parity Act, um, which would allow states that had met these simplifications to 
um, the collection authority. They met these all of these requirements. Ultimately, the, the the House, the committee never took it up. It sat in the committee for 22 months uh, without ever receiving a hearing. So ultimately, though, in, in, in 2015, of in March, uh, the, the, the case of DMA versus Brawl made it to the Supreme Court. This was an unrelated tax case. But um, what the state of Colorado had said is that they were trying to create, you know, notification requirements for out-of-state retailers. If you didn't collect them or sales tax, if you had to notify both the business and the consumer of, of what the person bought, and therefore then, therefore they had the information to properly comply with the state's tax law. So what Justice Kennedy, in writing his uh, concurring opinion, said that this was not the appropriate case to reconsider Quill, but if the right case were to come along, then the court should take it up and consider whether or not the 1992 Quill decision was constitutional. And to, in, in a little bit after that, in that summer, um, then the, the then president of the National Property State Legislatures, um, Kurt Bramble from Utah, and the, the chairman of the National Governors Association was also from Utah, Gary Herbert, met with the, the, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who told us that um, ultimately it was not going to take up the Remote Transactions Parity Act, that legislation we had worked so hard on, because it would overwhelmingly pass the committee. And we sat there and went, oh, that's horrible that three quarters over three quarters of your committee wants to support this legislation, and that's your reasoning for not taking it up. So at that point, I think we started to shift the way that we were going to address this issue. I didn't know that. Um, I just assumed that the whole house, can, you know, that this wouldn't have passed the house, and that's why, uh, and that's why it never went anywhere. But that's that is an interesting tidbit. <laughs> that's politics right there. So thwarted uh, officially, you know, you did everything you could with Congress. So then, uh, so then, what happened after that meeting? Uh, we, you know, we we were a little like, you know, is this the end of the road here, or what is the next step? So we convened a meeting in the NCSL offices with uh, retailers, with the National Governors Association to, to look at, you know, other avenues to go about this. And we were always reticent to go the court action way. I, you know, it's I personally, my personal belief, I don't think that's how the, we should be looking to pass legislation is through, through courts, uh, that, that we wanted to get a good law in um, so that everybody knew uh, how to how to comply with interstate sales tax collection? That that meeting kind of put us over the edge, I think, and we decided, okay, well, we still want Congress to act, but going through the courts might be the only way to do it. Uh, and by getting states to pass laws, and that might be challenged, we then could come back to the court or Congress and go, hey, courts are taking this up. Uh, therefore, it's your you know it's your, your chance to still address this. So at that point, while we had pivoted to going to the states. Um, at least, I don't believe that the, the states actually were still at that point banking on the court to, as our ultimate destination. It was to get Congress enough reasoning to actually address it. Um, so we still lobbied Congress while um, we were while we shifted to state level. We shifted a lot of our efforts to the to to the states, and we thought about different avenues of where states to try to address this. Uh, so these notification laws and reporting requirements, the Supreme Court had just said was. Um, we're constitutional. We were telling states, hey, if this is our avenue you want to go, um, do this. And it's not, you know, you can, you know, and you'll probably see some outcomes because, quite frankly, this reporting requirements are pretty onerous, I believe. Like, I don't think that the state of Colorado actually wanted to get a bunch of paperwork all the time about who was who was buying what and what was taxable. I think they were just putting this out there and go, look, collecting the taxes is easier than doing this. What about marketplaces? Marketplaces were really starting to really boom at the time. 
uh, states were passing affiliate nexus laws saying, you know, if you're if someone just selling inside your state is connecting on this platform, that gives you presence that you have to collect. And um, and then ultimately got to a point where you get to South Dakota um, and other states that said, we're going to try something completely different and just say that we think Quill is wrong. Uh, and and to just say that if you meet a certain threshold amount, either by sales or by, by dollar number or number of sales, then we think you've availed yourself to our state's market. Uh, that and that the way that the advances in technology have, have evolved since '92, that it's not an undue burden to to collect and remit. And I think that's a good point that people didn't, you know, that isn't often made enough. Is if um, there isn't any burden at all. Now, like we never said that there wasn't. It's a it's a burden compared to your to the the seller that's down the main street who has to you know collect taxes, get a business licenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and to make it the, the level the playing field between them. Um, and I also like to point out that our biggest, some of our biggest, the most vocal state legislators, because, you know, during my time, I'm wearing my hats of both lobbying federally on behalf of states and their budget fiscal issues, as well as um, directing a task force uh, that really uh, addressed this with the prominent state legislators across the country, was uh, these are mostly Republican-led effort at the state level. Um, Republicans want, wanted to be able to, they typically favor consumption taxes over income taxes. Uh, so they were some of the most frustrated uh, of, of anybody. So um, in states in general, this is bipartisan at the state's level. We are losing, losing these dollars um, and our retailers are suffering. Where do we go about it? Um, all these different efforts coming together. It gets us to South Dakota, um, which was, uh, you know, a few years later is, is what um, ultimately got back to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So South, South Dakota, I think, was a great test case because it doesn't have an income tax. It's very reliant on the sales tax. You had um, Deb Peters, a state senator there who had testified before Congress before on this whole issue. And what happened there is the legislation, as I recall, passed fairly quickly. And and I, when I interviewed uh, State Senator Peters at the time, I remember her saying they crafted it like in meetings with everybody. Everyone got on board and said, how can we write this so that it gets fast tracked through the courts? Because the end game was supposed to be the Supreme Court, right? So yeah, I uh, I'll backtrack to how why we picked South Dakota as well. So after this meeting with the chairman of uh, president of NCSL and the chairman of NGA, who were just told, "Look, your legislation is overwhelmingly going to pass Congress uh, or pass the Judiciary Committee. Therefore, we're not going to take it up." We you know had a meeting with the retailers and NGA and NCSL's offices, and the retailers were at it. They wanted to go to South. They wanted to go to the state of Tennessee. I believe that they want. They thought a five hundred thousand dollars threshold in South in, in Tennessee that there was existing laws or regulations already on the book. They didn't need to pass anything else and move forward. And while I'm not a lawyer, I raised my hand and I was like, I don't agree with you guys. Uh, I think the place to do this is South Dakota. It's the most, as you said, it's the most reliant on sales tax. It's the most simple sales tax code in the country. But it also only has two levels of court systems. It's not, you know. District, appellate, state Supreme Court. It goes from, I believe, a, a district to straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, so moving it through, and I also wasn't, I'm not an expert on the South Dakota judicial system, but I imagine it would move um, that they didn't have a ton of cases uh, compared to other states, as well as, you know, jurisdictional cases. And also, in order to move legislation through, frankly, it's hard to get to pure South Dakota. Um, and anybody that was going to come out of an opposition, it would be a long way to get there. And the, the, South Dakota legislature moves very quickly. They're only in session for about 30 days a year. So they don't get to use its fast tracks on the way through the system. So a state that has been very active in the streamline efforts, that needs the money the most, that is really um, you know hard to get to and, and was vocal, 
I was like, that's why we should go to South Dakota. And the retailers, everybody in the room said, okay, do you think that they're interested? So right after that meeting, I called Senator Peters, who's a good friend of mine. And I said, hey, this is what, you know, a lot of the people on the, 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 the proponent side here think that South Dakota is the right state. And she said, overwhelmingly, uh, yes, let's do this as soon as we can. And I'm like, do you understand what this means? We are like the, the idea here is to introduce legislation that's going to get sued. And she goes, well, yeah, duh. I'm like, okay. So she said, she said, can you, you help out? I said, sure, absolutely. And I, at the time I happened to be, NCSL has state liaisons and I was the liaison to South Dakota. She said, well, when you come out, like connecting with the right folks to write the, the draft, the right piece of legislation and come out in, in January to help, um, you know, to answer any questions any of my colleagues may have. And what the legislation did is, you know, we had very simple, if you sell more than 100,000 in our state or you have 200 transactions, you have to collect a remit. I mean, that's basically what the bill does. The remaining portion of the bill, I think the bulk of it, of, uh, was saying that if and when this were to be challenged, uh, that we direct the state's court system to take this up expeditiously as fast as possible, which was kind of novel saying you're introducing a bill, knowing it's going to be unconstitutional. And if it does, hey, court system, you have to take it up. So I get out there in January and I, I, I was speaking to, you know, the legislature uh, uh, about this issue. Overwhelmingly, the number one question I got that day from members in the, in the, of the legislature were, why can't we vote on this bill today? That, so the support was there. In fact, and then when it worked its way through, I think the first hearing on the legislation in the Senate was about seven or eight minutes long. It, it worked its way through. I think from introduction to the governor's desk, it was, I mean, two weeks, two and a half weeks this legislation that changed the way that internet commerce is conducted in the United States um, made, you know, made it through the legislative process it, it, that fast. That's incredible, especially given how long uh, states have been lobbying Congress for this. I mean, I know it, it didn't happen right away that it took, what, like a year and a half or so to get to the Supreme Court, but uh, in retrospect, a lot faster than getting Congress to move on it. Well, I think it was um, I think it was 22 months from when it, the bill was introduced until cert was granted, and I remember that day very clearly. And you know, in the district court and the Supreme Court, the state went in there; they were sued. Basically, the state went in there and said, "Yeah, we agree. We're not right. Like, what's unconstitutional? Can we just move along? We're wrong." And then they get to the next level. And then in October of 2017, after the state Supreme Court um, said, "Yeah, it's unconstitutional," the state filed Supreme Court, uh, United States Supreme Court, to grant cert for petition to, to take it up. And I remember in January of 2018, I was doing a webinar on, I think, uh, a tax law that had just passed um, federally. And my, ba- my boss, the director of the D.C. office of NCSL came up at the time and uh, wrote in a big piece of paper on, on it and said, Supreme Court grants Wayfair, put it up against the glass window. And I had to pause the, co- the, pause the middle of the uh, webinar and, and, and relay the news to that. I think we had like a thousand folks on. So I was, I was just absolutely thrilled. And at that point, I was fairly certain that we were going, that the, the states were going to be victorious because I, I didn't see, after uh, Justice Kennedy's basically invitation in 2015 for states to take this up if the white case were to come along, I really, I really believe that they were going to, uh, you know, move, they wouldn't have taken it up if they weren't planning on, you know, either modifying or overturning it. And I think another part the folks don't, you know, that we were also doing to help push states through is that South Dakota wasn't alone. Uh, they had, um, you know, internet was, you know, commerce was really booming. I mean, it was really, you know, we're getting to the point where it's really starting to, to take off. 
And, you know, states needed this to be addressed. They saw the dollars that they, they didn't, that were left on the table. I, I was taking fielding calls from state legislators from, you know, if you called NCSL about sales tax issues, that ultimately question came to me. And most of the time, you know, states were going, Max, what do I do? What, what law do I pass? And as a staffer, my job isn't to tell them what to do. I would just give them options of what, what is, what, what is your intent? What would you like to achieve? If you, if you go, if you go the route like Colorado, um, and, you know, make sure that you, you know, it, it's not going to be unconstitutional. You can go to South Dakota, but then you have to make sure that your state and your colleagues are willing to also end up, um, you know, willing for this to be challenged in court. Uh, or you can try somewhere in between. So I think, uh, you know, I advised on, I think most every state, uh, sales tax bill that was introduced or enacted, um, sans one state. Um, from 2015 through 2018 across the array. And the idea here was, uh, you know, I would offer to states as well, how can we help this effort? The idea that the Supreme Court takes up issues that are, where it's been decided differently in different uh, court jurisdictions. So try something different over here in this state, try something on, on this state, and ultimately work their way through. And there were challenges there. There was notably a challenge in Alabama that was moving through with a regulatory action. And uh, we, were, we were basically telling the Supreme Court, as we wrote in our uh, amicus brief to the court, that if you don't take up South Dakota, you're going to be taking up another state. Uh, there's going to be another state and another state and another state. Telling them that this is something you're going to have to address at one point or another. Um, and, and ultimately, I think in 2016, you know, you had over two dozen states acting, uh, and then the year after that. So the 24 states, and then you get to, I think by the time the quill came up, that you had nearly 20 state laws that were all over the place. Um, regarding sales tax collection. So there really was an opportunity or really we were signaling to the court that this needs to be addressed at a national level. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the most impressive you know, state coordinated efforts I've seen. And, and and the NCSL was very much, I think it seems like the glue that kind of, or, or the conduit, I suppose, however you want to refer to it, that kind of helped usher this along. So fast forward to, to June, 2018, the Supreme Court sides with South Dakota, and um, and and that must have felt. I know you said that you kind of expected it would go your way, but after it was official, I mean, the sense of victory must have been amazing. It was uh, a case where I had been. I personally was uh, noted as a state expert in in a, in a amicus brief. Um, a, a case where Senator Peters, the bill author, and I, we were the first and second people to enter the Supreme Court on the day of the oral arguments. We had the number one and two tickets. I have a great picture of uh, us in front of, the, of, of SCOTUS. Uh, and in, in, in oral arguments, I was named as a leading state leader while I was in the courtroom on a case that I was very instrumental in helping get there. I, I mean, by no means am I saying that uh, that it was me. Or I, I would just happen to be fortunate to be at the finish line of a couple decades of a lot of hard work from a lot of different folks. To, to see the court grant that, it was vindication and relief. A former girlfriend of mine who uh, goes to a very, went to a very notable law school, uh, her dad's a constitutional law professor there, actually texted me that day. I was like, oh, what is this? She goes, wow. She sent me a Forbes article and it said, uh, you know, even before the argument, um, Max in CSL's Max Belkey said this was the tax case of the millennium. It turns out that he was right. And uh, to have that come in, I mean, to be, I mean, be personally the first call for every major newspaper uh, you know, I, I got to, you know, it was like the Times is on the line. I'm like, I'm talking to the journal. Uh, the Post is here next. I mean, me personally, it was just, it was, it was surreal. Uh, you know, just thinking back on it now, I, I guess I didn't have a loss for words. But uh, 
we also wanted to, you know, we after we got our census together, we did I, we did go down to Capitol Hill to Charlie Palmer's and everybody that had been involved. Uh, we did throw a, a pretty great afternoon um, ad hoc celebration on, on Capitol Hill, uh, which was um, wonderful. To go back to coordination, to where we were to get to that point, after CERT was granted, um, I took the lead uh, on behalf of NCSL and, and, and the state community, and I was I was the spear point on making sure that if South Dakota ultimately prevailed, that our critics wouldn't be wouldn't be proven correct. That we that states would do this correct. This was ultimately not about making it difficult to sell or hard for anybody. This was about leveling the playing field uh, for for all retailers and to make it as easy and as simple as possible to, to, for, for tax sales taxes to be collected and remitted. So beginning in January after CERT was, was announced, I convened a weekly meeting of the state tax officials with the governor's association, with the, the state and local, uh, with, with, with counties, with the, with the mayors. And making sure that every state was prepared. Uh, there were a couple states that were looking to go retroactive. We called them up through the legislature as well, the governor's offices and said, look, what are you doing? Um, you guys are being stupid. Don't kill it for the rest of us. They, uh, they ultimately came around and understood that that was the right way to go. And in the year since, so it's five years since this, since the Supreme Court acted. And contrary to, you know, many opponents at the time, the internet didn't collapse. Uh, I think that you can still shop online. In fact, I think if, like right after the decision was announced, Wayfair, the namesake of the um, of the of the lawsuit, actually said we're going to start collecting the rating sales taxes from every um, jurisdiction we sell to. So, um, and also funny note, the first, the literally the first item I bought online after uh, the Wayfair decision was a dining room table from Wayfair, um, and I paid sales tax from it. So I still have it. It's my Wayfair table. I like it, but. And, can you, and, and looking back and looking at what's transpired since, well, the five years seems like a lot of things have happened. Um, seems like decades of, of, of stuff has happened in between. We had a, we had a pandemic. Can you imagine where states would be if they weren't able to collect sales taxes during uh, the pandemic? The, the amount of dollars they brought in, um, or so much more than we even estimated that what sales ta- what states were, were missing out on. Yeah, and, and I mean, no one could have known it at the time, but that everything transpired and that ruling came in and states put those policies, those laws into place at exactly the right time, as it turns out, because so with the federal stimulus, so many people went online to shop that it was, I mean, online shopping was increasing every year. That's not, that's not news, but it just spiked so much during the pandemic. And, and you're right, the amount of sales tax revenue that states received from that because they could collect sales taxes on remote sales, it was astonishing that to think I've, I've, I've thought that many times, actually, as, as a state fiscal policy nerd, that, of course, is what I'm thinking about during the pandemic is, wow, it was a good thing that the Supreme Court uh, Wayfair decision came down in 2018, because that was I can't imagine what it would have been like without that. A lot worse, for sure. Yeah, it could have been it, it could have meant that states that didn't have a sales tax or didn't have an income tax were going to put one in or that other taxes were going to go up, um, which would, have, would not have been good um, for anybody. And, and you know. Where and as the economy, the internet continues to evolve. Uh, the way that we continue that we're digital, the digital world now. Wayfair is uh, still, you know, impacting how affecting how states are addressing uh, um, their fiscal policies and, and the way that uh, going forward. And um, it'll still be there. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm just I'm glad for the state budgets, and I think for them as well, uh, they're pretty happy about it too. 
Well, before we let you go, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what you're doing at the Institute for State Policy Leaders. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on now? Sure. Uh, so uh, my, my, my boss during Wayfair, when, when CERT was granted, I've been working on the issue for so long, it felt like decades. And I, uh, I think it was, I don't know if the word obsessed is the right word, but it probably is, on um, trying to uh, find a solution. And I told him after that happened, I said, look, at the end of, after, after this, you know, when this case is decided one way or the other in June, I'm going to be leaving uh, after our, our NCSL's annual meeting in August. So I, I left NCSL after that and um, went, took on a couple other uh, really interesting uh, jobs for, uh, for, you know, help set up uh, the government government affairs work for a, um, you know, multi-billion dollar company. And then I worked in the trade association for a little bit. Neil had gotten, Neil had retired from NCSL and the, I guess his you know, his love for, for state policy and, and finding solutions to the toughest issues of the day, he couldn't leave it. So he began an institute with state for state policy leaders to provide um, state legislators and uh, policymakers and leading voices in um, the business community and to address them, you know, to find time to, to put programs together to address the most important issues of the day that really require multiple days or in-depth programming topics that we're going to be addressing that really don't have solutions, but that providing education on, on what they are and equipping policy makers with the tools, the insights, and the access to experts and, the, and, and knowledge really were, were, were beneficial for everybody in the policy arena uh, to, to come together and create good policy. So, he, he did. They held their first meeting uh, last uh, year on with the on the electric vehicles, uh, working with the auto industry. To, we did a great seminar on um, the future of, of what states should be thinking about that, and I think it's even more important now. You know, after the recent federal laws pertaining to electronification have passed, and uh, then he, he called me up and said, "Hey, like, would you want to you know possibly come on board here and you know help expand this institute and you know." develop more programs on on top on these emerging topics and I, I really couldn't uh, resist and I, I of course I agree so uh, this year is our you know my first full year here um, we have expanded our programming we're doing again on we're doing other uh, academy again on electric vehicles we're doing uh, a meeting on broadband adoption another uh, industry or, uh, that really uh, is really expanding right now due to the federal legislation and the dollars that have recently come down there. Working with, uh, we're doing um, focus or individualized state programming with uh, our criminal topics for criminal justice, the healthcare, uh, a ton of topics. And of course, we're also uh, diving into tax. Uh, so we held our first uh, tax meeting uh, in June of uh, earlier this June. We're having another one in November on the most important in educating them on the most important topics of the day. State legislators aren't experts on topics typically. Uh, they uh, they, they have limited staffs. They are most of them are part time. They have other jobs, and, and tax policy is complex. Um, I think this year there were, I think over sixty percent of state legislative tax chairs rolled over. So they don't have the insight or the the knowledge or the background in a lot of these topics. So just educating them on what these topics. We're, we're not driving a policy agenda. We don't have one. We're not saying one thing is good, bad or the other. We just want to we provide balanced programming on. These are the, the, the folks that you should call when you have questions that uh, are on all sides, of, on either side of the aisle or other side of the issue, whatever that topic may be, and to equip them with, you know, so when they go in to write a bill or have a committee hearing next year in their state, uh, not only do they know 
the, the right, they're really equipped with the right tools and information, but they have uh, access to who to call on, I have a question about EVs. I have a question about, you know, this, what is, what is reapportionment for tax? You know, something like that, that uh, they, they know who, they know how to, how to reach out. So we're, 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 we're new, we're young, uh, but we're going to continue expanding and, and have a lot of diversity of programs um, and have great in-depth conversations. Well, Max Belke, thank you so much for joining us. It was a really fun and informative conversation and loved hearing the backstory behind Wayfair. Liz, I really enjoyed it as well, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners, the UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtoby, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Aerial Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance. For public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry. For a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals and anyone else working in the ESG space. Discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Pod.